Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be. Turn there quickly if you would. Luke 15, we'll stand in just a minute. We're in a series on building relationship bridges. Bridges aren't built on accident. Um, they require great time, cost, and effort. And if you notice even the, some of the bridges going up around Tulsa right now, and some of the new ones that they're repairing and building, it, it takes a long time. And I'm grateful they put a lot of effort into it, aren't you? And our tax dollars at work and some of those, I'm grateful they're good bridges. John opened our series a few weeks ago, and he mentioned uh, that Oklahoma at one point was ranked 49th uh, for bridges in America. And so I did some research this weekend, and now we are ranked number five in the nation for bridges, which is kind of cool. And uh, I'm grateful for that every time I drive over a bridge. And so uh, that's, that's, a, that's a blessing and it's neat. And in our own lives, you know, it would be a goal, I think, for us, a worthy goal, for us to have relationships that would rank high, that that would be a top five priority in our own lives and that we would give the necessary time and effort uh, to, to making, creating bridges, and then repairing them. And that's the story tonight uh, about a relationship that suffered and then it was repaired. And uh, we're going to look at that tonight. So if you would stand with me, Luke chapter 15, uh, verse 11. In this, in this passage of Scripture, the Lord tells three successive parables. And I'm not going to read the first two tonight. I do want to set the context with verse 2. And we're going to go straight into the parable of the lost son. So look there with me quickly at, at verse 2. Here the Bible says that the Republicans and sinners, they gathered together to hear him. And so he's got a crowd, Jesus does. But verse 2 says, and not just them, the publicans and sinners, but the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, okay, this is the accusation that they're making against Jesus. So they're murmuring to each other. They're complaining. They're looking at each other. These are the know-it-alls. These guys have the religious system figured out. They are the closest to God by far, at least by their standard. And so, so they say to themselves and to each other, in scoffing, indignant, arrogant, stuck-up religious tones, okay, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. <laughs> like, this guy hangs out with sinners. Like, he didn't even, I just can't believe this. Okay, based on the song a minute ago, I am very glad that he hangs out, hung out with sinners and that he continues to as well. And, and they're looking down their nose at him with indignation, with self-righteousness. And so this, these parables, these three stories are a response to these men and to that attitude and to that spirit. Okay, I'm going to reference the other two. We're not going to read them tonight. I know you're standing. So verse 11, and he said, certain man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he fain had filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And I want you to understand the correlation between the phrase in verse 14, he spent all, and verse 16, no man gave unto him, nor should they have. Verse 17, that's its own sermon. I'll touch on it later. When he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough in despair, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. 
and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to be married. The story goes on. We're not going to go into the older brother tonight. That's a whole different sermon tonight. I want to focus on these few verses tonight. The relational bridge between a rebellious son and, and, and a father and how it was rebuilt. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for tonight and the chance to be together. Lord, we are grateful for our freedom. We're grateful that the lives that were sacrificed that we process today um, and, and tomorrow allow us and give us the freedom to be in this place tonight and to enjoy speaking in your name and growing in you. And Lord, I pray uh, that we be thoughtful about that this weekend. Lord, thank you for your word. Speak to us tonight once more, we ask. Help us to find application in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Jesus was perceived, uh, even by the scribes and the Pharisees and, and those that disdained him as an intellectual. His followers called him a rabbi, which certainly was a threat to them. And so, in his response to these men and their their arrogance, their indignation. Jesus with humility tells three successive parables. And they were carefully orchestrated and consistent with the work of a scholar presenting his case to other scholars. So yes, the publicans, yes, the sinners are there. But these aren't his primary audience with these three stories. He is a, speaking as a scholar to scholars. And each parable carries with it a theme. And the theme is this, something's lost then it is found, and when it is found, there's rejoicing. In the first parable, it's a sheep, second, a coin, and then a person, the ultimate treasure. In the last parable, there are three main characters. Of course, there's the father, there's the older brother, and then there's the younger son. So there are these three characters. But the context of the parable is also set in a community. This is true for the other parables as well. And so just off stage, if you will, as he tells this story, throughout every twist and turn of the story, the reader, us tonight, the listeners then, are to be aware of their offstage presence. Now that's significant, and I'm going to come to that in just a minute, a minute why, because we read the story at face value, but we have to remember Jesus was telling this context in the context of community, and to these people, they would have understood some things that, that aren't necessarily glaringly obvious to us tonight. And so it is the interaction with the characters and the characters with the crowd of the community that drives so much of the behavior of the prodigal son and subsequently of the father. So they're both interacting with one another, but they're also strongly reacting and interacting with the community around them and the choices that they make in the story. And Jesus breaks right in. The story starts quickly. We read about a man, he's got two sons. That's all we know. And the younger son makes a request for his early inheritance. In traditional Middle Eastern culture, that would essentially mean this. The son cannot wait for his father to die. That's a big deal. And it's easily overlooked. This wasn't just a young man trying to make his way in the world. This was a boy requesting something that especially in the Middle East would have been unthinkable and even in our culture today would have been unacceptable. For them though, 
in a culture that was built on honor. This request was dramatic. It was rebellious, hateful, personal. A traditional Middle Eastern father would have heard that type of request and would have struck his son across the face. That is what the community would have expected the father to do. Whack! Disrespect. It was an outrageous ask. He should have, because of the insult and dishonor toward his father, he would have and should have been, especially as the younger brother driven from the home. And so the audience, as they hear Jesus tell the story, expects that the father would refuse the request because that's what they would do. But the story takes a twist. The father doesn't refuse the son's request. Instead, he allows the son to both inherit early the property, the inheritance, and, and this would have almost caused a gasp in the audience, not just inherit land, but because land was such a precious commodity, he sold it. He cashed it out. This breaks the mold of the Middle Eastern patriarch. To the listeners, this act was unthinkable. And the primary reason, again, was because of the community, because of the shame, the dishonor it would have heaped on this father and on his family name within the context of the community. So it's one thing to have a horrible break in a relationship with someone. It's one thing if there's, if there's this quiet background disagreement or this relational lit bridge that is, is in disrepair, it's breaking, it's fracturing, it maybe completely breaks apart. It's another thing when that becomes completely public. And that's what was taking place here. The son inherits it and he sells it. And now the whole community knows about this interaction between father and son. First century Jewish law did not grant children the right to sell any part of their inheritance from their father until after his death. So this is against the law. But the prodigal does sell it. And he doesn't just break his father's heart. He's breaking the law, the law of the community. And so he sells it. Okay, so now he's obliged. He has to get out of town quickly. Why? Because the wrath and the anger of the community is going to descend on him. He is going to be the object of scorn and disdain and hatred from those around him. He shamed his father. He shamed their community. He broke the law. And it's this community anger that presses him to get out of town fast. I'm going to read from a book by a man named Kenneth Bailey called Jacob and the Prodigal because he adds some color and context here uh, that's just impossible for me to add outside of maybe just reading this. He says, in the Jerusalem Talmud and elsewhere in the writings of the sages, we are told that at the time of Jesus, the Jews had a method of punishing any Jewish boy who lost his family inheritance to Gentiles. Such a loss was considered particularly shameful, and the horror of that shame is reflected in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Testament of Kohath, and it reads this. Now, this is a direct quote from the scrolls in this time period. And now, my sons, be watchful of your inheritance that has been bequeathed to you, which your fathers gave you. Do not give your inheritance to Gentiles, lest you be regarded as humiliated in their eyes and foolish, and they trample upon you, for they will come to dwell among you and become your masters." Kenneth Bailey continues, To discourage any thought of committing this heinous offense, the community developed what was called the Kazaz Ceremony. Okay, we would call it the cutting off ceremony. Any Jewish boy 
who lost his inheritance among the Gentiles, faced the ceremony if he dared return to his village, if he was going to come home. The ceremony itself was simple. Fellow villagers would fill a large earthenware pot with burned nuts and burned corn and break it in front of the guilty individual. While doing this, they would shout, so-and-so is cut off from his people. And from that point on, the village would have nothing to do with the hapless lad. The boy knows this. When, when he leaves, and he goes to live in a country of Gentiles, and we know this because of the reference to swine, he, mu- he knows he burned his bridge. There's no going home. He's going to have to face the kazah ceremony. He's going to be completely cut off in his village and his community. He knows the money he has inherited from his father. And by the way, it would have been substantial. In this day and age, the man had servants. At the end of the story, when he throws the big party, he's got a house enough to receive much of the community into his home. Um, he, He has fatted calf. He's got robes and rings. He's got all these things. It would have been a substantial inheritance. He knows this is all I got for life. And he takes it, and he goes to the Gentiles. There's no going back. But the Bible says he spent it. He spent it all, and he lost it all. And as so often the case with those to whom money comes too easily, he wastes it. In verse 14, he says, when he had spent all, his pockets are empty, he is starving, he's eating pig food. Yesterday, I was studying this passage, and my son David comes in the room and says, Dad, what's the story for tomorrow night? It's like, all right, let me tell you about this story. So I'm telling him about the prodigal son. And he's, yeah, I know this story, Dad. I said, yeah, but he was eating pig food. I was like, can you imagine going over to Boomer's Bowl? That was Boomer's our dog. And eating Boomer's food? Hell, that's disgusting. Right. That's what he's doing. He's eating husks. It's even worse than the dog food. He's eating this food. No man gave unto him. And he came to himself in verse 17. Some scholars believe this wasn't really a moment of repentance, but it's hunger driving him to this point. And hunger can be a really good motivator. I think I was about five years old. We were living in California at the time. And my room wasn't clean. And I am not advocating this as a parenting strategy. I'm just telling you. My dad said, Daniel, he said, you're not going to eat any food until your room is clean. So I missed breakfast that day, then I missed lunch, and then I missed dinner. So this is a standoff between me and my dad. So about 36 hours passed, and I'm five years old. And so I finally cleaned my room and, uh, and, uh, because I was hungry. And so the next day I got some food, and I threw it all up because my stomach had shrunk or something, I don't know. And, uh, and I'll tell you, you could ask my brother, uh, and my wife and others that know me well, my room's always clean. <laughs> it's never been dirty since I was five years old. Um, don't ask my brother. That, that probably not a good idea. But uh, um, hunger's a great motivator. So it doesn't matter why. But God used this in his life. So he's hungry. You know, when he left home, he had so much. And now he has nothing. He has no robe, no ring. No shoes, no inheritance, no pride. He's as lost as can be. He has no options. He thinks of home, and he remembers the kazah ceremony, and it's all he has. If he wants to eat, if he wants a job, 
He's going to have to go through it. He's going to have to listen to his people cut him off. He's going to have to stand in front of his father and face his sin. He's going to have to face the shame and, 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 and endure this moment. And so he prepares himself for the shame that he's going to endure. And he thinks of the painful interview with his father that's sure to come. And so in verse 18, when it says he arose and came to his father, this is a big deal. This isn't just a kid sloughing home. This isn't like, well, I, I didn't have any other options, so I'm here. There's no attitude here. He knows what's coming. He knows what he's done. He knows what he faces in this moment. But what about the father? What had he been doing this whole time his son was gone? See, the father knew the son would fail. And so he waited. Day after day. Stares down the road in the distance along which his son disappeared. And like his son, he too remembers the kazaa ceremony. He knows how the community will treat his son when he returns home in rags. And so the father prepares a plan for the meeting. And his plan is simply this. If I reach the boy before the boy reaches the village, I can protect him from the shame and the anger of the community. But I've got to get to him before he gets here. I've got to be the first one to embrace him. I've got to have the rest of the community see publicly the reconciliation. They need to see my love. They need to see my embrace. They need to see the shelter that I intend to provide for him. And then they'll understand my heart and where things are. But to achieve that, self that goal, self-emptying humiliation is going to be required by the Father. See, it would be the Father's sacrifice and not the Son's that would spare him from the kazaa. And so the second part of verse 20, we read this. His Father sees him a great way off. And the Bible says he had compassion and he ran. And so once again, this father breaks the mold of a Middle Eastern patriarch. He sees the boy at a distance. He takes his long robes in his hands and he runs down the crowded streets to welcome his pig herder son home. There's something that's not entirely dignified about seeing an older man run. But here he was. Again, I'm going to borrow from Kenneth Bailey's writings. He said, traditional Middle Easterns, Easterners wearing long robes do not run in public. They never have. To do so would be deeply humiliating. The father runs, knowing that in so doing, he will deflect the attention of the community away from his ragged son to himself. People will focus on the extraordinary sight of a distinguished, self-respecting landowner humiliating himself in public by running down the road, revealing his legs. They will not even notice the ragged young man until after the reconciliation takes place at the edge of the village. And off he goes. The father doesn't wait for his son to speak. He doesn't need an apology. He had compassion. He saw his son. He saw the rags. He smelled the world on him. But he felt his hurt. And he wept. And he embraced and he rejoiced. Not in what his son did. Not in, in the actions and the rejection 
Not in that hateful way he left. Not in the shame he had heaped on his family name. He rejoiced that his son was there just in his presence again. He saw the face that he loved so much. He had his boy's living body in his arms. And his son was just present. And so like the other preceding stories, there is rejoicing again in the presence of the community over something or someone that was lost. But now they are found. And a banquet is thrown. See, instead of a kazaa ceremony, the village is participating in the joy of restoration achieved, not by the son, but by the father at great cost to himself. There's a lot going on in the story. But just for a few more minutes, I want us to consider the heart of the father. See, Jesus was clearly speaking about himself because as the parable concludes, the father does exactly what Jesus was accused of doing in verse 2. He receives sinners, he receives a lost son, and he eats with them and rejoices over the repentance. It's a case of hermeneutical Christology. Jesus takes a known symbol for God and he quietly transforms the symbol for himself right in front of these indignant, righteous, supposedly righteous men. It's the heart of the Father that Jesus is expressing. And it's the same heart that he asks us to reflect in our relationships with each other. Forgiving one another, Paul would say, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. See, when our relationship with God isn't right, when things aren't right this way, it's really hard to be right this way. And when things aren't right this way, it's really hard to be right this way. They both got to be going at the same time. They work in that way. One of the greatest barriers in our relationship to God is our unwillingness to forgive other people for the perceived or the real hurt and harm they've done to us. So all of a sudden, we've got this bridge going out to other people. And that falls in disrepair. And automatically, there's severance here. There's disruption. And so we're broken here and we're broken here. And the Lord wants us to live with forgiveness here because He's given forgiveness to us. And we're to reflect that same kind of spirit and heart. Look, the story doesn't have a perfect ending. Sin always extracts a heavy cost on our lives. But it has a good ending. The son and the father, they regained their relationship. And that was worth more than the inheritance, the sum of money. So I want to validate for a moment the father's hurt. And I want to recognize it. And I want us to understand it. Because it's easy to read the story and not think about his hurt. He raised his son. He intended to leave him inheritance. He loved his son. And the son treated him like trash. He walked out the door. Said, I wish you were dead. Give me what's mine and I'm out. And I don't care about your name. And I don't care about our community. I'm gone. You know, for us tonight, there are some seasons of life and some moments that are just bad. There's no other way to describe them. Often they're precipitated by a singular event that leaves us genuinely hurt. 
For the father in our story, it was a son who didn't recognize his love, who didn't want a relationship with him, who pushed him away. For you, it could be something small that's happened recently, or it could be something big, or, or something that's turned into something big. It was a conversation that left you stunned. Or a day of shocking discovery. A call or text that took your breath away. Wrongful death. A friend who walked away. A hurtful conversation. One remark that is so hard to let go of. Brutality that was unleashed on a loved one. A text you weren't supposed to see, but you did. Manipulation, betrayal, violation, false accusation, theft, firing, hurt. We've all experienced it, been there. And that moment, for whatever reason, changed you. Became a defining moment. You wondered, in the context of that pain, if life would be the same again. And it's hard to stop thinking about it. And the hurt lingers. And it pops into your mind, into your heart, in unsuspecting moments. And I, and I don't think this, this son left the father and the father was over in a day. He, he's hurting. He's in this position of hurt. So how did he move past it? How, do we, how, did, he, how did the father go from this beginning of the story where his son walks out at him to the very end where he's waiting in anticipation and, and, and embracing with love? Well, the answer is simply this. He forgave him. He forgave his son long before his son ever returned home. How do we know? Well, because he was waiting. And then he was running. He abandoned all dignity. He embraced. He kissed. C.S. Lewis said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea. Until they have something to forgive. See, we all like forgiveness until we're the ones who are hurting and when you have something to forgive, something that hurts your feelings, well, now forgiveness feels like a dirty word. And we can conjure up all the substitutes and all the reasons why we can't give it. The thought of it hurts. The thought of forgiving makes us cringe. Genesis chapter 3 is a perfect world. Beautiful. Can't imagine what it was like. Nothing like what we can see today. We're going to see it again someday. But it's just a beautiful world. And in this perfect world, this man takes a bite of an apple. Crunch. And with that crunch, the world changed. So here was a man and a woman. They're naked in the garden, walking with God. And all of a sudden, what do they do? We're naked. We need to cover up. We need to hide from God. They run to the shadows. They retreat. See, hiding isn't our preference when we do something wrong alone. It's also our preference when we have been wronged. We're hurt, and so we want to retaliate. We do it in a lot of ways. We hurt back, we neglect, we, ride, we hide, and we run. And just like Adam and Eve, we retreat to the shadows. But when we hide from other people, I want you to know this. You're also hiding from God. Because this, is, this isn't right. This isn't either. And we hide from Him too. 
and He walks the garden of your life, and He calls you by name, like He did Adam and Eve so long ago, and He wants you to forgive just like He forgave you. He wants that hurt to be healed in your own heart. He knows you can't do it on your own. Adam and Eve couldn't fix the problem themselves. The hurt's too real for that. But God doesn't base your forgiveness on your, your determination. He bases it on your participation in His plan that He's already laid out for you. It's not something we can or can't do. It's not something we muscle through with clenched fists. Forgiveness isn't based on what you do, but what He did. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 says, But unto, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. In other words, he says, I forgave you and I've enabled you and I gift to you grace. You can forgive anything you choose to, not because you have the power, but because he gave it to you. He's gifting you with that power. Forgiveness is simply allowing his grace to flow through you. I want to make an important point here. It's a side point, but it relates to this idea. Never confuse redemption with reconciliation. Those aren't the same thing. See, reconciliation occurs when two people are willing to do the hard work of coming back together. Redemption, forgiveness, your forgiveness of them, truly letting go of that hurt, that's between you and God. Things are never going to be right here until you do that. Forgiveness is about letting go. It's about having grace. It's about not holding in the pain. God can redeem you even if human relationships don't come back together. We can forgive even if the relationship is never restored. Forgiveness is more about our relationship with God than it is with the other people. It's us letting go. It's us recognizing that. It's us moving past the pain. When someone is willing to reconcile, we should be in a ready state of mind to receive them back. But that's the place the father went. He couldn't fix the son. He had to be there, though. He had to forgive. He had to let go. So very quickly, what did that forgiveness look like? Well, the father gave up his pride, and he gave up the right to demand that his son pay him back. He gave up the right to demand that his son suffer. Did the son deserve to go through that ceremony? You bet he did. Was that the wages of his sin? Absolutely it was. Was the father willing to see his son go through that? No. And he gave up that right to see his son suffer. He gave up the right to demand his son apologize. The father's forgiveness wasn't dependent on the son's response. The father's forgiveness was dependent on God. And he said, I'm going to let this go, and I'm going to embrace you, and I'm going to love you, no matter what you do or what you've done. God is going to handle it. And he rested knowing that God would handle it, even if he never saw God handle it. He had that kind of faith. And he knew, Lord's going to take care of this. I'm going to trust in him, and I'm going to let go. And I'm going to love and do right. Through his forgiveness, he gained a lot more than he lost. The Father's forgiveness allowed for healing of His own heart. It allowed Him to go to a place where He could embrace. When God provided a way for us 
to be forgiven, we benefited. Like, I mean, it's just unimaginable. Like, we can't even begin to conceptualize the difference between going to hell and going to heaven because of simple faith, like that of a child. And all of a sudden, our destination is eternally changed. We benefited, okay? God did too. The ache in his heart, in some measure, was healed. He longed for fellowship with Adam and with Eve and with their children, which is you and I. He longs for that. And through Jesus Christ and his blood and the sacrifice and the power, the conquering over that bite of the apple, the great sacrifice he made, he too benefits from our relationship and our interaction, and, and one day being at home in heaven with him as a great big family. The longing for fellowship and connection was healed in his own heart. See, you can't let go of the pain until you forgive. You get freedom from that pit that you've been in when you let go in your heart. Does it mean instant healing? No. There's still tears. But those tears can turn to compassion instead of bitterness. Our healing doesn't rise or fall on their efforts or on the reconciliation of the relationship. It's peace in our hearts that allows for that type of thing to happen. See, forgiveness is the greatest evidence that God is working in you, that you're reflecting Him. It's the sign that you're paying attention to God and sensitive to His will and to his heart. Forgiveness doesn't fix the person, and it doesn't fix the situation, but it is our participation in his scheme of redemption. And our forgiveness allows God to work. It frees him to showcase his love and his power. And it's a pathway through which God works to bring healing both to us and to those that he has allowed into our lives. But that's a choice we make. We can choose to have the Father's heart. For sake of time, I won't go into it tonight. But the older son didn't have that kind of heart. His brother came home. His older brother had everything left. All the inheritance was his. He just had to wait for his dad to die. It was all his. But his son got a party. His brother got a party. He wasn't happy about it. Now, we don't know how the story ends. But we do know how the story ends for the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they were the older brother. And we make a choice. With the father or the brother. Let's do our part. Let's have some grace. Let's get things right with God. Let's let go of the hurt in our hearts and choose to forgive. Let me ask you to stand tonight.